There's a shadow Follows me everywhere A reminder Family that came before And left behind Present to find everybody to showing up to our little podcast. We have relocated this evening to the bricks for our recording. We'd like to thank our guest this evening, the astrophysicist Doug Gobey. I hope I said that well done. Well relatively done. well. Très bien. <laughs> We'd like to start out our show by asking a little bit about the background of our scientists. So please let us know how you, you got to where you are today. Wow, that, that's deep <laughs> and challenging. I think it kind of started when I was about four or five years old. I came home from my grandparents' house late one night, and um, there were a lot of us, as I told you, a lot of uh, siblings, and I was kind of left outside, and my parents found me a little later on in the front yard, just staring up at the sky. Uh, I just been kind of memorized, uh, mesmerized excuse me, by it. I think the real credit goes to two things. Mom being a mathematician, amongst other things, uh, but when my brother Nate was eight and I was four, he uh, met me in the sandbox one day and said, Hey, Doug, what's one plus one? He said, Two. Everybody knows that. Because what's one minus one? I go, Zero. Everybody knows that. So what's one times one? I go, what? <laughs> Show it. Show it to me. Draws kind of one, X, one. I go, Ugh. Two. No, it's one. You're stupid. Because what's one divided by one? What? what? Show me. One, line, dot, dot, one. I'm like, uh, Kyle looks like subtracting zero. No, you're stupid. It's one. I went inside. I had a talk with mom. I came outside the next day. I said, Hey, Nate, what's the cube root of 64? <laughs> and uh, he never challenged me again. <laughs> and uh, when I was in high school, it really gelled because I'd always known I liked. Everyone said, He's going to be a lawyer. He's going to be a scientist. He likes blowing things up and arguing. And I found physics with my high school physics teacher, a guy named William Space. So my physics teacher's name is Mr. Space. And it gave me a point of convergence of my love of math and nature and so many other things. I was like, this is great. And at that point, it was just done. That was that was it. From there on, pretty much as straight as narrow down my path. Okay. So one of the things we were talking about earlier was the fact that, obviously, you, you have to do a lot of teaching. And uh, one of the questions you were asked was... Um, how do you make it interesting for students? <laughs> How do you engage students? Uh, there's a bit of vaudeville in there. It's uh, a song and a dance. There, there can definitely be um, some Effenheimer moments. Um, Effenheimer? Effenheimer. <laughs> here I try to dodge a little bit by using some parlance. Uh, it's dropping F-bomb here and there. Usually wakes people up. Uh, if you see a bunch of people sleeping, it's either... Pretty easy to, to wake them up by, by swearing. Um, or again, tell a joke, get them interested, and kind of pull them in. But in astronomy, it's not usually that hard. In physics, it can be a bit harder. Uh, the classes are very large, and so it's, it can be difficult to reach everybody equally in the front and the back. Okay, so having talked a little bit about how you deal with your students, what are the specifics of your research? Specifically, I study things that are called active galactic nuclei. These are some of the most distant objects that you can see in the universe. Basically, what's going on is 
We're seeing galaxies freaking out at an early age, and what's happening is there's a supermassive black hole at the center of these galaxies. Think of something uh, roughly the size of a solar system, mm -hmm. inside of which we're going to put maybe on the low end uh, 10 million suns, on the higher end about 10 billion suns. Wow. You have a richer environment back in the day, a lot more galaxies. These are baby galaxies kind of colliding and forming. And you've got a lot of fuel to feed these black holes. And I should first and foremost stop and say, despite what we've been told, feeding a black hole is an incredibly difficult thing. In fact, uh, let, let's say that my, my I'm a hitman and my weapon of choice is throwing you into a black hole. Mm -hmm. This is very hard. This is this is not the way that I would be doing this. Uh, Which is very counterintuitive. Because yeah. the way it's portrayed to us is just like, yeah, okay, Cosmic just vacuum sucks cleaner. in everything. No. It's hard for a number of reasons. So there are really only two things you can know about a black hole. How fast it's spinning and what its mass is. If you think of like a spinning wheel for something that throws baseballs or something that throws tennis balls, the wheel spins when we drop a ball onto it and fires off. Yep. Well, that black hole is spinning, something the size of maybe a solar system, spinning on uh, tens of times per second depending on the size of it. Well, that might be a bit fast, but still very, very fast spin. So I can't just drop you in. You don't actually drop in. You get thrown somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And this is just the beginning of your problems. If I drop a, a black hole in the middle of a star, it can't also feed indefinitely. As a black hole swallows material, so I, I maybe I try and feed this black hole some stars. I give it a whole slew of stars, a million stars. And what it's going to do is it's going to tear them pieces. And as it is doing this, it's spinning up the gas. It's compressing the gas, and this causes it to heat and to glow. And as it's glowing, it's producing radiation, as in electromagnetic radiation. One of the properties of electromagnetic radiation is it pushes things. And so as it eats, it pushes harder and harder. And you reach a breaking point where it's pushing with its maximum force of what it can pull with. And so at that point, I can no longer feed it. Okay. It has to basically cool off a little bit. It has to make a little room, if you will, in its stomach. It can eat indefinitely, but there is a maximum rate at which it can eat. And because of that, again, falling in is not the easiest thing. You would think it's just this force pulling you in, gravity. Mm -hmm. That's not true. There's also a lot of stuff trying to throw you out as well. Okay. So where does the term black hole come from if this, if this thing's the brightest thing in the universe? The black part comes from the idea that if I drop you in a black hole, it's not a philosophical statement. You're gone. You have gone a place where there is no return in the sense of all information is transmitted by light. Mm -hmm. And what does a black hole do? It eats light. Okay. And so once you're in, you're not coming back. Okay. If I put you anywhere else, we can retrieve information about you. Again, we hear uh, famous physicists like uh, Michio Kaku and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan before them telling us that we breathe in the air of all of our, our ancestors, the only people who have come before us, and every breath we're breathing whether it be the air molecules that Julius Caesar breathed or even perhaps some of the actual carbon or the oxygen that made him up. Mm -hmm. um, but this deletes you uh, from the universe. And that's where that idea of black and, 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 again, the mystery of the black hole a little bit comes okay. from. Uh, that see. and Disney and Hollywood, they never get of anything course. right. On the subject of Neil deGrasse Tyson and Carl Sagan, what do you think of Cosmos? Pretty good. I, I like a lot of it. It's somewhat famous at this point that Neil deGrasse Tyson went a little crazy on Twitter when he was watching Gravity, pointing out and criticizing, which is fair, all the mistakes the movie was making. It's difficult for me as I watch Cosmos not to criticize and point out all the mistakes he's making. <laughs> the things he said are not necessarily wrong. I, I should be quick to point that out. However, they're also not 
Right. I, I feel it leads people to believe that we know a lot more about what goes on inside of a black hole than we actually do. What we do is we speak about things that we know and that we can repeat and we can verify and mm -hmm. we can test. And once you get past that, by the virtue that all knowledge is transmitted via light, mm -hmm. what does a black hole do? It eats light. And so pulling information from a black hole is incredibly difficult. We don't do that. We pull information about what goes on around the black hole, and that's what we're capable of doing. So the second he went in there, he's appeasing the string theorists a little bit, which mm -hmm. is, you know, interesting, and everyone wants to talk about string theory, and string theory is a wonderful and amazing thing, and if it proves right in any way, that would be amazing. But to me, at this point, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So is Doctor Who, among so many other things. Yep. Because it's beautiful doesn't make it right. Yep. I think this is a limitation of trying to help people understand what we do as scientists and I think to some degree you want to simplify to a point where and that's you a are challenge. yes where you're not telling the whole truth distilling that kind of wisdom is very challenging again black holes are not well known or understood so Quite. definitely a challenge there otherwise again I should be clear the rest was great yeah I have to say I'm enjoying it very much so as a neuroscientist, obviously I have particular tools that I use and what we do is measure electrical activity in nerve cells and so you have your, your microscope and you have your electrodes and you have an amplifier and I can see how nerves fire. Um, what are your tools in your trade? Mm -hmm. I've made a bit of a name for myself by being what I, I've jokingly referred to as a dumpster diver. The gentleman who came before me as a graduate student, uh, a gentleman named Teddy Chung, um, started this idea and I kind of took the ball and ran with it where primarily I use what's known as the Very Large Array, or the VLA out in Socorro, New Mexico. Now, okay. most of us have seen this, if we watch Contact, again, say again, um, we've certainly seen the VLA, but it's also ubiquitous. It's been on a Bon Jovi cover. Uh -huh. It was in the latest Terminator movie. It's, you know, the VLA is part of culture at this point. Mm -hmm. Very creative with our names. <laughs> again, the, the VLA, wherever, the Very Large Array. Oh my God, I wonder what it is. I think it's an array, and it's probably pretty big. Uh, I use that as my primary instrument, but all their data after about two years becomes publicly available. Okay. And again, as a scientist, you know that we, we get grants and we also get distracted. Sometimes we take data and we don't exactly have the chance to analyze that data fully. Mm -hmm. And so I would go through these archives and grab onto Peel's trash that they had previously used and say, there's more here. There's, mm -hmm. as, as if, like, they have stripped the bone, but then I broke the bone open and said, there's marrow there, by the way. Yeah. And it's been waiting there the whole time. So we work in a very limited funding environment right now. So being able to do more with less makes me very valuable, especially right now, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite ingenious that you're using data that's already out there. And Part of the recycling generation, so I guess Absolutely. it's kind of going with it. Absolutely. We have some questions from our audience here. We have Beautiful. quite the little gathering. First of all, uh, a nice one from Jill. How much do you hate being called an astrologist? <laughs> <laughs> it's been rare I've been called an astrologist. It's usually an astrologer. I suppose I'll, I'll answer by saying when I was a single graduate student in Boston, uh, when you're at the bars, if the girl was liking you, you told her you were an astronomer. Mm -hmm. if, if you needed to get away from there, you said astrophysicist, they would run for the hills. <laughs> I uh, see the, the looks that people give you if you tell them that you're an astrophysicist. Um, but yes, if has it happened? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, how close is the nearest black hole? Ooh, that's a good question. Black holes are not uh, confirmed, really. I mean, nail in the coffin until about maybe five years ago. Um, the most nearby black hole I could name off the top of my head 
would probably be Cygnus X3. No, that's not worth a lot to anybody, really. Uh, the closest supermassive black hole to us is easier, because that's more of what I studied. Um, those are what we call stellar mass black holes, something like Cygnus X3, something about the size of our sun. Something that maybe the largest stellar mass black hole I know will be on the order of ten times the mass of our star. Okay. Supermassive black holes, on the other hand, are the fourth class. There are four classes of black hole. Um, and it's going to be, again, on the order of 10 million to 10 billion suns. The most local um, supermassive black hole is what we call a Sagittarius A star, which mm -hmm. is at the heart of our own galaxy. Yep. Um, it's doing about nothing, really. Okay. Uh, and it has a mass, off the top of my head, of about 40 million suns. Wow. Okay. I think for me it starts to become really strange to try and imagine something that's so much bigger than our own sun. It's, it's very odd. Somebody asks, what the heck is string theory? Oof. Oh, boy, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, string theory. Mm. You're looking at the idea that the universe is very different than the way that you perceive it. Einstein built up a universe that is four-dimensional. That was one of his great insights. Um, if you look to Principia, you come to time in Principia, Newton pretty much just says, you know what time is, I'm not going to explain it to you. Right. It's, it's a second on the clock, let's get past this and move on to bigger, meatier things. Einstein kind of merged the ideas, he said, okay, let me see what happens if I add a third dimension to all these uh, physics equations we have, and out comes all of reality and general relativity. Mm -hmm. a, general, a gentleman named Kaluza uh, later on said, hey, that's a great party trick, let's see if I can do it again, and basically pull out, rather than gravity, the other big force that was known at the time, electricity mm -hmm. and magnetism. Yep. And he finds that he can't do it with four dimensions. He adds a fifth dimension. Everything comes out. Yep. All the laws that we had known that just kind of spew out from here. And so Kaluza is now faced with a universe that maybe has five dimensions to it. And that's a strange thing to us. Because we live in a... We are mobile, as we say, in three dimensions. Yep. And we are moving in one direction and the other one. Yep. Time. We can slow that down. We can speed that up. Moving into the future is the easiest thing. We're doing it right now. Mm -hmm. It's the past that's a bit more challenging. Yep. And let's not go there. <laughs> but later. Maybe, yeah. maybe. But as the scientists were kind of approaching some of these problems, they said, well, maybe we can start to explain the unexplained at this point by continuing to add more dimensions. Yes. And so, depending on whose theory you want to be with on any day of the week, uh -huh. and there are a lot of them, um, basically, you come down to the universe probably being, at this point, made up of 11 dimensions, as strange as that might sound. Yeah. And that's three subspatial, three spatial, three superspatial, time, and super time. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, super time! <laughs> um, as that is right. It's very strange. Go, go read Flatline, which is the first thing I tell you. It's so. like an 80-page book. It's easy-peasy. You're in and out, and you have a lot better an idea of it. I caveat this at the end of that <laughs> by saying... There is no proof, absolutely no proof of string theory whatsoever. And until there is proof, putting stock in it is a little bit foolish. All of science is barking up the unknown. As Einstein said, if we knew the result, it wouldn't be called research. It, it might be that next step, that next enormous Newton-Einstein moment that opens up our world to us and we can see in new ways. Or again, it could be Harry Potter. This one sounds like a very open-ended question. Oh, dear. Yes. Are we close to knowing everything in physics? So many times in the past, we've been burnt by that statement. Sort of. You need to compartmentalize. There are parts of physics that we understand very, very well. 
and that to every approximation we've made is all but perfect. However, there's of course the great schism, which is between relativity and quantum mechanics, in the sense that you can take Einstein's laws and build from relativity down to maybe the size of a virus, and it stops working past that. And you can bring quantum mechanics and build up a world up to about a virus, and it stops working about there. And so you have these two sets of laws which define the very large and the very high energy, and the very small, and they don't meet in the middle, as you would like them to. And so physicists, I believe, know at large that something's wrong, something, something stinks. Something is missing, something that could be substantial, or something that could be subtle. Mm -hmm. uh, my mind is unsubtle. I think that we are very, very close in physics. I think physics has answered most of its questions. That it's in the noise now, and that's some very important noise, mind you. Astrophysics, on the other hand, not even close. Um, why? Well, it makes a lot more sense. I can't build a star in a lab per se. Uh -huh. Again, that's what you do at the LHC, technically speaking. It's where we're building stars, we're seeing these early conditions. But I need them for a longer time. Mm -hmm. And I can't, in, in my work, for example, these objects are so far away that, you know, again, my advisors in graduate school have been studying them their whole lives, and they're, they're in their uh, 60s and 70s now. And there's very little evolution. You see almost no change whatsoever. Mm -hmm. These are things that are going to last for hundreds of millions of years. And one of the great disappointments of astronomy is you almost never see anything change. Nothing's terribly dynamic, so it's all census work. If I got in a rocket ship that could travel at warp a million, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And I went to where these objects I study are today. Not only have they moved, obviously, ignore that, but they're not doing today what they once were. Yep. That light has been coming to me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's doing something completely different. I need a TARDIS. I need to be able to go there <laughs> at the, to see the light I'm getting now. I need to go at the moment the light was emitted yep. to see what was going on. It's not just a, a matter of traveling through space. It's a matter of traveling through space and time yep. to be able to see these events. And so until we can do that, again, we have two fundamental hurdles. Not only are these things hyper-distant, but they're gone. Yep. They're old and dead. Betelgeuse is one of the nearby stars we kind of all know. We're mm -hmm. kind of waiting for it to go boom and yep. have for a long time. But because it's about 700 light years away, it could have a long time ago. And we're waiting for it to yep. come to us now. It's a patient game. Indeed. Um, so I think you've actually answered the next question, uh, which is... I like to preempt questions. <laughs> um, so all observations are so far away, and sometimes they're made, well, most of the time, I think, made indirectly. So how much of it is really known? Indirect measurements are certainly the astronomer's tool. I teach an entire class on that, in point of fact. I joke that astronomy in a lot of ways is saying, okay, I put you in a car, and I tell you, tell me about the car. Mm -hmm. Now, the inside is easy, yep. but what about the outside? What about the engine? What about what's under the hood? What about what's in the trunk? What about the glove compartment? I didn't say you could even open the glove compartment. You can't yeah. roll down the windows. And we're trying to come up with tricks to open the glove compartment, to roll down the windows, to look at the reflection in the car next to us, to see what the, the, the tires might look like. <laughs> we have to get really clever to tease this knowledge out of the universe. It does not always want to uh, give it up to us. So do we go out on a limb? Absolutely. Uh, astronomy is, is all about pushing the limits of what we can humanly do, and uh, that's why we're always making bigger telescopes. I joke that currently there's discussions about a telescope called the Outrageously Large Telescope, the OLT. That'll be huge! <laughs> Is that actually what it's called? Yes, yes. 
who knows if that that won't be the working title. I'm sure at the end, but that's what we're. <laughs> oh, there's the VLT, which is the very large telescope. Room. Um, so we're perhaps not the most clever at naming things, but um, the question is, how much do we know? Well, give me a bigger telescope, and I'll tell you more. Congress, if you're hearing me, keep funding. And unfortunately, that's what it comes down to. In my field, bigger, much like again, particle physics, bigger is better. We need more. Otherwise, we we step farther out on the, on the ledge, and it's, it's using theory. So it, it's a tricky business. Okay. Um, this is a fun one. What is the job market like for astrophysicists? Crap! <laughs> crap, crap, and more crap. <laughs> Presumably you're doing okay, though. Yeah. Um, no, again, as I said before, um, and, and one has to be a realist about it, our impact on mankind is in a lot of ways relegated to knowledge. And um, while I, again, I would argue passionately, as Sagan would have, that that's incredible. I think knowing where you are in the universe is a very important thing. I think it, it, it may be that hippie inside of me. If you all realize that you are the size of a microbe living on a tiny pebble mm-hmm. that's floating around through space that can be blown up by this, that, or the other thing any old time now, maybe we'd be a little less concerned about these strange geopolitical lines we've drawn on the map. We outspend the next eight countries on the on, on military budget. We have, it's absurd, like $600, $650 billion. Your NASA budget's like $18.1 billion or somewhere in that ballpark. If you look historically over NASA with all its patents and what it's given to us as a society, an easy place to look is the tires on all of our cars are built out of rubber and technology that was designed for the space shuttle, all of us. Uh, and everything from you know sneakers to microwaves to digital processors, uh, compression algorithms, again, stuff that probably everyone here is using on an almost daily basis, all of that comes from NASA. Astronomy, I feel, promotes engineering and astrophysics and, and the, that human drive to go there and do that and then the next thing. That's yes. it. And I'm doing it for the love. Trust me. We'd like to thank our guest this evening, the astrophysicist Dr. B. Legacy is the spark like a whisper Echoing in my arms for generations I never meet Here's a song connection you to me made in the past for you to find the present on Super Bowl Sunday someone trashed my car outside my house they they moved it so conveniently from in front of my house to parked sideways across my driveway via pure momentum and kinetic energy. So I, I, I'll always make it semi-professional by I went to class the next day, and what am I talking about? I turned the car instant into a, all right, well, we can see how far the car moved, and we know roughly the mass of the car, so let's discover how much momentum was involved. <laughs> so I had no car, and so I, like a industrious individual, just hopped on my bike and started biking to work while I decided oh, wow. on what to do about the car situation. So one night, as this was going on, about a week later, came home and my dogs liked to assault me at my door and so I left my bike on my front porch and I went inside and I took the dogs out back and I hear some footsteps on my porch. I open the door and there is a, dare I say gentleman, trying to abscond with my bike. And he starts running down the street. So I, I, I ran after him and, and I caught him 
it didn't go well for him. And I went back to my house, and I'm, I'm debating what I should do next. And I say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll call the police. I should probably get this on, on paper. And um, I say, whatever you do, don't chase my... I, I, I looked down the street, and he's moseying at the speed of stupid, slowly down my street. <laughs> and I, I kind of hop on the bike that I have now retrieved. And then kind of tail after him a little bit. And he turns the corner into my street, and then he goes about 10 feet and walks in the house. And so the police eventually arrive at my house, and they said, do you know where he went? I said, I know where he lives. <laughs> to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle Two Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at twoscientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. challenging the forwards bit is easy and slowing slowing you down is easy i can bring you to a crawl i can almost make you immortal